Welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Rozeal, and my guest today is Paul Bremer. He's the founder of Good Sport. He's also an investor and an advisor of many different sports and technology businesses. Paul, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. The pleasure is all mine. I promise you that, Paul. Very excited to get to talk about a lot of these things with you within the sports space, the technology space, the application space, women in sports. But, Paul, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Just ingrained from from a, from being a young kid. I remember I used to go to games with my dad. I grew up in the D.C. area, and I would go to various games, Capitals, Redskins, Orioles, whatever. And I would just wear them out with sports facts. I mean, that was just me from almost right out of the womb. My first job out of college was minor league baseball team, Daytona Cubs, media assistant. I still have that business card, the media assistant business Love card. It. Made 200 bucks a week, worked about 20 hours a day, and it was boot camp for life. And it was probably one of your favorite jobs you ever had, right? Oh, it was great. Yeah. It's, I ran the souvenir operation. We pulled tarp when it rained in the afternoon, as it does every day in Friday on a, in uh, Florida. And uh, it was a blast, for sure. I mean, especially minor league baseball. There's something about minor league baseball that everybody there kind of knows. It's like, yeah, you're probably heavily underpaid and way overworked, but you're doing it for the love of the game at that point, right? Especially yeah. right out of college. I mean, how do you, was it always a goal of yours to work in sports in some capacity? It really was. I remember trying to finagle my way to get down to Atlanta for the 1996 Olympics. I was not able to do that, but it was always on my radar screen. But my 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 career actually took some different twists and turns. I was in the advertising realm, and I, I came back to sports intermittently. I, I headed up sales for NBCOlympics.com in, in, in 04 and 06 with Athens and Torino Games. And then I worked at various ad tech companies and sort of have always been a little bit maybe ahead of the curve in terms of digital media. And when I finally saw the opportunity to launch a content company about four years ago with Good Sport, that that, that was my way of getting back into back into sports. Good for you, man. That is that is absolutely fantastic. And, and you bring up the digital media. I'm excited to talk about that. But you did bring up the Olympics. We didn't talk about it a little bit in our pre, uh, you know, pre-recording, but the Olympics is very near and dear to my heart. I did see that you had a little little time there at NBC with the uh, the Olympics. So what I guess, how, what is it like selling advertisements and digital media for one of the biggest events, you know, this, the, the biggest event essentially every four years, considering the summer games and one of the biggest events in the world, considering the winter games. I mean, are you just, is your just inbox flooded and you're just kind of saying who has the most money or like, how, how does that process work? And what was that like? I wish I've never had a sales job like that. That's, that's Uh an order, order taker. I think that stuff expired in the eighties, but ultimately with the Olympics, it's a very interesting thing because it's an immovable object, right? Mm-hmm. So you could be selling two years out, but you're selling against 17 days that are just looming on the horizon and you're counting backwards toward those days. And in 04 and 06, NBC had just taken back their digital assets for the 2002 games in Salt Lake City, which was a really seminal moment uh, post 9-11 US uh, domestic games. They had a joint venture with Microsoft, and they were just wanting to take back because they realized how valuable the obviously the broadcast rights were, but they were starting to look at digital rights. So it was cool to be in the moment where we could actually help shape the strategy, figure out what were the what were the products, not to make, use tech terms, but what were the things that we could sell sponsors on, and uh, and we actually. I think by the second games, we really learned a lot and and had a very successful, profitable, importantly, uh, venture. 
Yes, it's the Olympics uh, profitable to say the least. And and I don't want to spend too much time there. But as you said, it's an immovable object that has recently been moved. So I, I mean, I know you probably don't have, you know, it's it's been a while since you were there over 15 years at this point. But say you were there or, or say in, in 0406, something like this did potentially happen. It's very hard to speculate. But just out of curiosity, I mean, what what is going on? You know, you've been in those war rooms before. And, and again, you're not you're not next to it right now. But what the heck are they doing? And how are they trying to just make the best out of this situation really only having 15 months to, as you said, move an immovable object? Well, it's not a direct corollary, but and a lot of people probably don't remember this, but the 2004 games in Athens were there was a lot of scrutiny around what was happening. Mm-hmm. They didn't think the, com- the the country was prepared, and there was a lot of concern about terrorism. We were in a post 9-11 era. Uh, the war in Iraq was going on, and there was a whole lot of concern. And there was even talk of canceling those games. So, again, it wasn't the same. We didn't postpone mm-hmm. the games or anything like that. But the, the marketers, the athletes, all of whom – had a vested interest in the success of the event, had to get themselves comfortable with it. And I think that's where we are now. Uh, uh, my cousin is a former Olympian who who represents a lot of Olympians in marketing deals. And he's putting a positive spin on it. He's saying they've got an extra year to train. And I think much, much like the Athens games, I think there's going to be so much pent up demand and, and joy for being there from the athletes, from the broadcasters, hopefully the fans, if it's safe. Uh, that I think it'll end up being a, a spectacular event. And unlike some of the other sporting events, like the Final Four this year and others, those events were wiped off the map and they're never coming back. Mm-hmm. At least on the business side, NBC and the broadcast rights holders and others had to push that out a year. But that event is actually going to take place, hopefully. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm going to cross my fingers. I'm under the assumption the same as you, that it will happen. We'll see what it looks like. I'm definitely curious to see, as you said, with fans, without. I mean, it's, you know, again, 15... 16 months since you know they decided to essentially say hey let's push it a year so we'll see what happens but i'm very excited the athletes especially as you said let's put a positive spin on it we're here to spread some positivity today and i think that is going to be a very interesting and it's going to be a fun event you know we get all this extra year and then we get olympics two years in a row which i think will be a lot of fun too because we get it in july and then you turn around a couple months later you get it in february um with with 2022 so it's going to be a pretty crazy what eight month stretch i think for the ioc the usoc usopc and all these uh countries around the world so it's unfortunate we get to wait. Uh, we have to wait an extra year, but I think it's going to be a pretty crazy eight month stretch. We get there, which should be a lot of fun. And so, sorry for that diversion, but I, I I realized that was kind of a cool. You know, it doesn't happen too often that I get to talk to someone who's done that. So excited that we got to do that. And and with that, going back to just the the digital media aspect of it, at what point in your career did you look and say, hey, there is this, you know burgeoning technology there is something here you know as you said even nbc some of these major companies yeah sure microsoft you can handle that whatever at what point did you start to look at the digital media space and say you know what i think you know i think one day people will get rid of their cable and and, you know stream on twitch or on youtube or some of these you know at what where in your career did you decide hey let me let me check out what's going on here and see see what i can learn to, to to push the envelope well sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart so i was actually the first ever sales rep at the Wall Street Journal.com, WSJ.com, before wow. they launched. So this makes me both old and experienced. Experienced, right. So so I was 25 and I didn't know anything about sales and I was a media planner. And my rep over there said, we're launching a website. And I said, what's a website? And he said, oh, you know, like the White House has, the whitehouse.gov, which was a very famous website at the time. And ultimately got into digital very early pre-launch of the of WSJ.com and then 
Portal Wars of the 90s and all of these various stops along the way, WebMD and leading companies in digital. And then fortunately, I was able to chase it again in about 2011 when I went into the mobile space. So I think that the, I think that the iPhone was something like 07, 08 or something like that. So we went from phone as a phone to phone as, remember we used to call them PDAs, personal mm-hmm. uh, digital uh, whatever it was. Um, uh, we now are in a world where everything is connected and, and social media was sort of the next revolution within all of that that took place. Uh, I never did work in a social media company, although I turned down a job at Facebook about 15 years ago, which I still regret, as you might well, imagine. my goodness. Um, yeah, well, so I'm still working. But, uh, but ultimately, now it's become this sort of interconnected world. And if you look at some of the events of the last 10 days or so, and the ability of media to be shared and the, the ability of being able to rally people around important topics, that would never have been possible before, even in the days where everybody had laptops uh, or even maybe early in the smartphone days. So on par, it's a great place to be. It's just that everything is completely connected in, in one place now. And I feel like the experience that I gained in the last 25 years of being a little bit ahead on some of those things has helped me evaluate the opportunity within this this changing world that we're in now. And yeah, I mean, you make a good point. Everything does happen very quickly now. Um, you know, things, I, I don't know how businesses worked on just mail. Like I, I always ask people who have been in the space a little while, like, what was it like before email? How did you get things done? And, yeah. you know, as you've been able to see, you know, what, what is a web page? Well, you know, like the White House has, let's see how we mm-hmm. can sell some, sell yeah. some advertising there. And I guess how, I'm, I'm, it's kind of an obvious question, but like, how has you, how have you seen the digital media space change? And as you said, how have you always kind of had that for that foresight of saying like, all right, well, if this came along, what's next? And, and obviously for you, it was mobile applications. But what was it like, especially those early years, as you said, just kind of seeing everything ramp up to the point where everybody's getting in on this game and it's not just a, not just the White House and the Wall Street Journal anymore. Now it's right. pets.com, right? Yeah, oh, well, that's an interesting story. So the, what I think that the industry did, meaning the digital media industry in the 90s is things were moving so fast and it was sort of a, propped up economy. It was an economy of hope, of promise mm-hmm. that that and everybody could see that eventually your banking and all of these things would be done this way, but it hadn't reached it hadn't reached uh, critical mass at that point. And I think that what happened then, and it's still it, there's a danger of it with social media now, is that the industry became arrogant and said, we're better than that old way that things are done, rather than trying to mix in with the old way that things were done. So take the NBC and the Olympics, for instance, we were able to actually sit down with the the, the big brother, which was the TV operation and say, how does our digital assets sort of complement what's what's really the mm-hmm. largest, the largest uh, assembly of eyeballs, which is which is live broadcast. And in sports, more than almost anything these days, not these particular days, but in general, the reason that sports is so valuable and the reason that ESPN can charge what they can charge as part of your cable bill is because live sports are is still the last bastion of appointment viewing. And so in general, depend, no matter what device you're on, live sports is something that makes people stop and and watch. And I think that that's where digital has sort of emerged as we've become platform agnostic. People will watch whatever the best screen is in their room whether they're whether they're streaming it from their phone or whatever they will they will find that screen and they'll watch it 
but sports has the advantage of being live. And I think that that's why it continues to be buoyant and it continues to be appealing for marketers. But how, and so I guess, how did you complement it, especially back, you know, with, let's just go back to your Olympics example. Like how, how were you able to complement your, the, the big brother, as you said, you can pick that up if you need to know. No, I'm fine. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I wasn't how, going to. <laughs> no worries. No worries. I'm, I'm busting shops. Um, yeah. How, how were you able to, especially in a space that didn't really exist, how, how are you able to go in and say, all right, NBC, you know, big brother TV broadcasting you know, what, what can we do? You don't really know what you don't know at that point in time. So what do you, what, how much stuff is being thrown at a wall? How many darts are thrown, getting thrown at this dartboard until you kind of figure something out? Of course, I use those cliches facetiously. Yes, of course. Uh, darts is not part of the Olympics yet. <laughs> not so yet. It's coming though. It's probably, coming. probably, probably ax throwing too. So, so what, what we did, I was we actually took the, we took a look at the digital models that were working. And there are certain things that we could do in digital that they couldn't necessarily do in broadcast. So, for instance, we looked at what CBS uh, Sports Line at the time was mm-hmm. doing during, during March Madness. This is before live streaming. And they said they were, they were having like a daily sponsor of the entire property, of the entire site. So we actually sold off all 17 days of the Olympics to different sponsors, sort of a homepage takeover, whatever mm-hmm. that was called at the time. And then there were other things that we played around with for, in terms of digital media. So one of the things that was interesting was we had a uh, an opportunity to show highlights. Okay, so video highlights. But it was very complicated to geofence this stuff. And you, the U.S. rights that NBC had were only in you know here. So we had to make sure that there was a way to uh, validate or verify that people were in the U.S. to watch highlights. And the only way that you could do that at the time, which sounds crazy, is you had to actually put in a credit card. So you had to take out a credit card, put it in, and somehow they they were able to validate that you were in the United States. And the NBC folks, who will remain nameless because of what I'm going to say next, pulled me aside and said, this is a great opportunity. We're going to have these highlights, and we need you to sell the hell out of this. And I said, said, the Olympics is a little different than other sports, and I'm not sure people would pay for highlights in, in general. And they said, well, no, no, these are free. I said, yes, I understand that. But if you're going to ask somebody to take out their credit card to watch Olympic highlights, I would count on virtually no traffic. And they said, well, we're doing it and it's an important thing. We spun it around and said, oh, by the way, we can only sell it to one sponsor, which is Visa, because they were the official card. So we spun it around to Visa as a new product and they ended up sponsoring the whole thing. And honestly, I think, Michael, they got like 1,200 people to do this in the entire Olympics. But it was a successful sponsorship. Visa got to talk about how they were doing something cutting edge at the time. Sounds mm-hmm. pretty silly now, but in 04, this was cutting edge. And we were able to save face and sell a sponsorship on it. So There you go. Yeah, I mean, people people now are still, I mean, it's, it's obviously much, much more common. But back then, I mean, my parents... No, no, you can't put the credit card number into whatever site. It's oh, like, well, why not? It's man. fine. It's like, no, it's not. And it's it's funny how far we've come now. Pretty much anyone is, you know, people just plug. It's like, oh, you need my social? Yeah, sure. Here you go. I'll plug that in anywhere at this point. So right. maybe maybe we've swung a little too far the other way. We'll see what mm-hmm. happens. But it's definitely it's very interesting how, you know, that that's it. I, I hope you're being um, you're lowballing that 1200 number because over 17 days that's such a small small number. But um, again, okay, I'll, just, I'll yeah. double it for you. <laughs> Call it 2500. I'll give you the extra right, hundred there good. too. But it's just so interesting to see how the digital media space specifically has been able to grow and within sports as well. It's now now I mean I don't ha- like I watch Mets games 
then I get, you know, I'll check Twitter to check out, you know, what Mike Trout did the next morning. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I won't really watch too many NBA games. I'll go on YouTube and I'll see that 15 minute preview that has literally every single play in it. So it's always just very interesting to me to see how this space has changed and being in it for so long and now kind of creating your own sports content company. What, what are, what are the, some of the things that you've seen along the way that made you say like, that's exactly what I want to do. That is something that I never want to touch again. You know, we're not going to make people plug in their credit card for highlights over Mm -hmm. here. You're like, what are some of the things that you've seen along the way kind of over this 20, 25 year career you've had within the the media space, digital media space that made you eventually come to the conclusion that said, you know, I want to own a digital media company and base it around sports. Yeah, and I'll I'll just start maybe just a few years ago when we started yeah, yeah. Sport and where I and it's interesting to see in four years how some of the assumptions that I sometimes take out my old uh, investor decks and things just to just to sort of see if a maybe there's some good ideas that we abandon or to laugh at myself or whatever. Yeah. But some of the assumptions that I had early on was if you build it, they will come. And that's not necessarily the case, right? Unless you're a cornfield in Iowa, that that doesn't exist, right? So the idea that you could have the best content in the world or just illuminating or enlightening or positive sports programming doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get an audience based on that. Uh, so very early on, we sort of put aside that dream and we started to become a content provider to media companies, nonprofits, marketers, uh, leagues. So one of the one of the things that I've just watched in the last several years is we, we've done a we've our production company has done a, a show for the NBA G League for the last three years. Gatorade came in and bought the rights to the G League. It was the D League. It became mm-hmm. the G and Gatorade uh, helped fund it and they wanted to have some more content. They were really light on content. And so we helped come up with something that we thought would be interesting for their social media channels, for NBA TV, for in arena, sometimes in broadcast on NBA TV, places like that. It was almost like cook the meal once and serve it up in different ways across platforms. And what we've learned, and I think it's pretty intuitive and almost everybody knows this, is that different types of media work differently in different places. So we launched the first year with a studio show that we shot with our partners up at Sacred Heart University. It's spectacular facilities that they have up there. And we were bringing in talent and we were shooting a studio show. Short, mind you, two-minute studio show, green screen. Looked great. And we were really proud of it. But then we started to do sort of shorter form player profile, kind of like get to the point Mm -hmm. content. And eventually the G League started to move from the, the sort of the slick veneer of a studio show to just wanting to show highlights or just do quick hit player profiles or whatever. So just the way that you're consuming media while you're watching that Mets game, right? Which is why live sports matters because Mm -hmm. you're not going to, if you're a Mets fan, you're going to watch that. If you're a baseball fan, you're going to find out what Trout did on Twitter or whatever. So in the same way, I think that media companies and entities like ours are taking a look at what the type of media that we should be creating that is intriguing to the platform that it's on, if that makes sense. And that's Mm -hmm. why when we pivoted to our new venture, which we'll talk about in a little bit, we are building all of this content to be quick, easily digestible pieces Mm -hmm. because that's the way people are consuming media. You have to, you have to present media the way that people are consuming it. Absolutely. And that, that is of course going to continue to change over time. Have you've already started to see in just the last few years? I mean, it's gone from, you know, YouTube used to say it's like, Oh, you only want videos under five minutes or whatever. And now it's like, Oh, well, the sweet spot's actually 10 minutes now. And if you can hit that every time you're actually doing better. And so, so that changes 
with the the demographics that changes with the people that you're trying to get in front of and as you said within within those platforms themselves you know if it's on youtube maybe it can be 10 minutes long if it's on instagram you know keep that thing to a minute because not too many people are going to watch even that long so it's always just very interesting to me and how have you seen how have like it's just so you you start this media company to help do all these productions like with the D league, the G league. And then, you know, as you're starting to see over time, things are changing, things are changing. How are you, when you're, when you're learning things like this from the G league, are you then going to your other clients and being like, Hey, we actually, we're starting to see some things change in this space. Like maybe, you know, this way you can come out as kind of on that consulting role and be like, Hey, we've started to see this work over here. Do you guys want to try something like this too? And really just kind of always be revamping all around. Um, I have to assume, right. Yeah, absolutely. We have a we have a client uh, too early to announce uh, their name now, but in the women's space, who hired us based on this, right? So they said they were interested in the quality of our work, which is always very important. But candidly, unlike four years ago, uh, there are a million pop up production companies out there, and and anybody with a really nice DSLR camera and some editing software and some talent can kind of be in that game. So it's 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 very tough to compete in that right now. Mm-hmm. So what we bring to the table is that consultative approach. And we've worked with probably 20 or so nonprofits, one that we're very proud of. And we've done pro bono work for them. And even the work, the paid work we do for them is at a great discount because we believe so much in what these sports nonprofits are doing. Amazing. New York Roadrunners, Wounded Warrior Project, too many to mention, thankfully. Uh, Boomer Esiason Foundation is a really good example where they had two-dimensional content. So Boomer Esiason Foundation, most people know, is uh, probably the preeminent uh organization supporting uh, uh, research and hopefully a cure for cystic fibrosis based on Boomer's son, Gunner, having cystic fibrosis. And in sports, as you know, in the sports world, a lot of people know the Boomer Esiason Foundation. Mm-hmm. We did some analysis of the way that their content was presented, and we realized that it was very two-dimensional. They would write an article about an intriguing athlete that had a great story. And, and athletics has been really a savior for some of these, particularly these kids who are suffering from cystic fibrosis. Ultimately, we convinced them to just take that two-dimensional content and turn it into video. And it's helped in, it's helped in promotion, it's helped in fundra- fundraising, it's helped in the getting their social media following up and so on and so forth. So you bank that as a case study. And then for the next person who's in that same state, mm-hmm. you help them figure out what they want to do. And I think that people still have a little bit of a of, of an ancient view of production work, that it costs too much, that it's too hard to do, that they're not ready. Ultimately, it's not that hard. I shouldn't say this because it's still a, a big revenue driver for us, mm-hmm. but it's really not that hard. The hard part is the strategy part and figuring out how to play in the different platforms and what you're ultimately looking to accomplish. And how did you learn that aspect of it? How much trial and error is involved in in learning all these new platforms? I know TikTok just recently came out and then right. it just kind of blew up. I mean, it's been out for a little while, but it's it's completely yeah. blown up, especially during the pandemic. So how right. do you go about learning and, and use, utilizing the trial and error within all these new platforms to make sure you're getting the correct message across to the correct people in the way, as we talked about, that they want to see it? It, yeah, and it's way too hard to figure out what the next platform is going to be oh, because my t- gosh, TikTok, yeah, TikTok is 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 Vine, but yet Vine didn't work. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. And then Quibi's sitting over here trying to do their thing, and so you can't necessarily ch- chase the next shiny object necessarily. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> excuse me, but what we have found is that if you there's there's an also there's a kind of a a, a, a cross. Uh, 
section to that, which is that you have to understand what the audience is. So even within certain platforms, now TikTok, you could surmise that's a young audience, uh, skews female, so on and so forth. But sometimes it takes something as ubiquitous as Instagram right now, which everybody from my kids to their grandparents have, much like Facebook was some years ago. You actually have to play differently within that environment based on the audience that you're going after, because the way that my kids are behaving in Instagram is very different than the way that I might be behaving in Instagram. So it is a lot of trial and error, and it's great to have well-known entities and brands to help us learn with. Rather, And so we've taken a lot of that learning, and we're trying to bake that into our own casserole right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's just always very interesting to me, especially considering how long you've been doing this kind of seeing like if, you know, in, in 2000 or 94, 95, when you started at Washington Post, as you said, what's a web page? And now we're talking about something called TikTok uh, that, you know, as you said, yeah. it's, it's a very young app that, that kids love to use these days and they just dance on it. And we don't understand why, but they do. And, you know, hey, whatever works, whatever works, as long as everyone's happy. But exactly. you bring up, you know, you bring up clients such as the the NBA G League, you bring up clients such as the Boomer Esiason Foundation, you talk about mm-hmm. a lot of nonprofits and doing a, a bunch of pro bono work. Of course, everybody, you know, of course, you want to give back, it sounds like you're a very good person. And you're always trying to help and do things. But you also need to get paid your clients or your your sure. your um your staff needs to get paid. That's the only way you can be in business and continue to help. What is it about the nonprofit space? Specifically, it sounds like you're doing a lot of work with a lot of these different places. Is it in particular, what, have you always have a, had a soft spot for nonprofits that you've always just tried to help in any way, shape, or form? Or is it just something that you found just works very well with the business, especially the mission of Good Sport? Yeah, I would say it's probably the latter. And we've been lucky. I mean, when I, when I sidestepped back into sports after being out of it for about 10 years, I didn't really know uh, who the players were or what was happening. On the executive side, on the, on the, on the network side, nobody had left. They were all in the same jobs. <laughs> enjoying themselves which Isn't was great nice. there we I was go. Like, and it hadn't innovated that much but but i would go to conferences and be like wow we're talking about this again okay so but 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 what i noticed i knew that there would be a lot of wonderful nonprofits and laureus and and all these amazing uh organizations out there and what and what tom ferry is doing with uh, the aspen institute and i think that the thought leadership that they're providing in in the direction that they're giving um for societal Mm-hmm. issues was something that we wanted to study if we we're going to go around calling ourselves good sport which it took me a while to get comfortable with even saying that that was going to be our company's name because if you say you're going to be there then you have to stay there entirely and 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 I think we have but what we learned is that a lot of them had on the business side a need to help tell their story most of these people don't come from marketing backgrounds most of them are zealots who want to take every dollar that they get and put it directly into the ground or to hire a new coach or a new inner city program coordinator or whatever but it's sort of the the teach a man to fish analogy where it's if if you can help them create content that helps them raise more money the outcome will ultimately be that they will be able to hire more people It's not as linear as saying I've got X number of dollars for this salary or whatever. So ultimately with the nonprofits, it's, it's, I think become a a really mutually beneficial relationship where we're advising them on the type of content they should be creating, creating that content at a discount, continue to generate revenue for our company and continuing to generate uh, donations for their organizations. And change the world. Of course, that is exactly what we're looking to do. And I think it is, you know, I've done some work with nonprofits in the past. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a saint or anything, but I have found that, yes, everyone is so laser focused on like, all right, well, this is the one thing I have mm-hmm. to do. How do I do it? No, we can't spend $15 over here because that $15, how do you have those conversations with those higher upset? Some of these 
nonprofits, just getting them to understand. It's like, I, I, I get it. I get it. You know, we'll, we'll do this part for free and we'll do this at a heavily discounted part. Just listen to me. I'm here to help. How do you have those conversations with people that are, you know, of course their, their mission is just to help as many people as they can and kind of seeing that, like, they have to see it to believe it first, right? It's probably very difficult to just say like, oh no, we got it. You have to actually really show them. It's like, no, 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 we've, we've done this before with this, this, and this, this is how we've helped. And hopefully we can do the same for you. Well, now we are able to do that because we have plenty of proof of concept and things like that. Uh, early on, there was just there was no shame in our game. We would take mm-hmm. any deal, small or, or or tiny even, and we were just doing it to build up our resume, to build up our reputation, to build up our our knowledge base. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, if you can start somewhere with someone and you can prove them, and this is where I think the ad sales background that I have was 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 vital to building a production company because I was burned actually, Michael. I, if you don't mind, I'll tell you the story about how I learned that I had to build my own production company. I had somebody as I was going to raise funds to, to, to fund the company from, mm-hmm. from angel investors, I figured I had to create a sizzle reel because everybody has a sizzle reel and that's the two minute, you know, mm-hmm. hype, yeah. hype video of what you want to do. And I had a, uh, a moonlighting uh, commercial producer create, and if I showed this in the background right here, you would laugh, create a video for me for $14,000 out of my own pocket that I Whoa. wrote the check for. I could make that video right now 10 times better for $250 probably, but I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. So I found that the production world, I'm not trying to pick a big fight with the production world, but I felt like the production world had a certain expectation of what their product was worth. And I think that 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 when the nonprofits or anyone else that you might approach, even the NBA hired us ultimately because we were outside, but we were more efficient than even using an in-house resource at the time. So if you can if you can set your price where it's supposed to be, and if you mm-hmm. can have if you can have the promise of things like unlimited edits, that was another thing that when I initially said we would do unlimited edits, everybody said in the production world said you're out of your mind, you're going to get nickel and dimed, you should never give more than two edits, meaning like a mm-hmm. back and forth of something, and and ultimately that's the final version. I said, well, my ad sales background tells me that if if my client's not happy, I can't be happy, and we need them to all be happy. And we've never once been burned in four years on unlimited edits. So kind of took the business customer centric view of production work. Mm-hmm. And and we also were not very kind to videographers who would say, well, this is my day rate. And I'd say, well, I need you for two hours. I don't need you for the whole day. And mm-hmm. so we, we started to break away at some of the traditions that have been sitting up there um, for a while. Yeah, it is a very interesting um industry the production world because yeah as you said it's everybody has oh this is what i'm worth it's like well you're worth what someone's willing to pay that's we all kind of know how the invisible hand works we all kind of know how (laughs) supply and demand works if you say you're worth 700 and i don't want to pay 700 i'm going to go find someone else to do it for less than 700 the word the you know so it is a very interesting industry to me i know some people in it i respect their craft and i love it i think it's such a cool job but you're, you're totally right there are certain situations where people are just their expectations are so much higher for what their worth is and not to say their work isn't that good. It's just, as you said, it's, this is my day rate. Well, I only need you for two hours. Why do I have to pay you for the entire day? You're literally going home. I'll even buy you lunch on top of it. Like we're not going to pay you for the whole day. It was always a very confusing thing to me. Um, 14 grand, man. That is oof. That is, yeah. it, it gotcha, but you learned, right? Expensive lesson, but you learned something from it. And uh, you said something before that I had a point on, but I guess it's gone now. And again, I just think it's really cool how you've been able to develop this. And so 
with that, so you, you decided to, you know, you let, let's go a little bit further back in time. When did okay. you decide that you wanted to start your own media company? When did you decide that, hey, this is or your own production company at this point? At what point were you like, hey, I want to get out of the corporate world. I want to stop doing mm-hmm. this and I want to start doing my own thing. Let me go hire this gentleman for 14 grand to make a sizzle reel for me. How did we get to that point? So I was in the digital media space for a while, which we already covered. And the last real job, real job I had was uh, for. I think a, what you're doing now is pretty real. Don't worry, Paul. <laughs> Give yourself the credit. You deserve it. Yeah, but you know, well, now I only I have to shower. Now I only have to shower for meetings like this. So, <laughs> but <clears throat> excuse me, but uh, but ultimately, what we uh, what I did was I was working for a mobile ad tech company, and we were fortunate enough to sell it. And I had a little bit of time to think about what I wanted to do next. And I had this itch in my head and I wanted to scratch it and I couldn't figure out what it was. It was sports related. I didn't want to be uh, Monday morning quarterbacking. Uh, I didn't want to be uh, shouting head content. I didn't want to be what is so commonly around sports. But I also realized that live sports was sort of like this shark that was swimming through the water. And when you see a big shark swimming through the water, there's all these little feeder fish that are right next to it. And they're they're benefiting from this ecosystem that the shark is in. And I said, which one of those feeder fish could we be? You know, what would be something that wasn't served that or underserved, let's say, in the in the world of sports? So I, I sat down to watch the NFL draft. I believe the year was 2016. And my two sons at the time were probably 10 and 8. And as much of a sports fan as I am, they're 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 decent sports fans. They're not like this crazy kid that I was, but so I sit down to watch the NFL draft and right off the top is the Laramie Tunzel thing. I don't know if you remember. What oh, happened. I remember that very well. Yeah. I wanted the giants to grab him, but they refused. So, so for those who don't remember, Laramie Tunzel was a lineman who just got paid a lot of money, who was coming out of, I think it was uh, either Ole Miss or Mississippi. Yeah, State. Ole Miss, so, I right? think. Yeah. Ole Miss. And, and he had some agent that he had hired and had fired pre-draft and this agent released this video right before of text messages to coaches alleging payment but most noticeably him in a gas mask smoking weed and with a huge confederate flag behind him and i have my two sons sitting there and i've been trying to wrangle them to watch the nfl draft with me and that comes in right off the bat and that was on espn so i said oh i'm gonna go to the nfl network they'll definitely whitewash this boom right on again it was news right and those those media entities are obligated obliged to share news. And this was news. And my two sons are like, why are we now watching it? Why are we now watching a hockey game? Five minutes later, you know, because I, I didn't know what was coming mm-hmm. next. Yep. <clears throat> and I was really frustrated, Michael. And I said, if I can't even sit down and watch the NFL draft without, with my sons where I don't really want to explain to them what smoking out of a gas mask and the Confederate flag and all these things mean, there must be something. And then all of a sudden, you know, I don't want to say lightning bolt, but I said, what if there was a place where just the positive sports stuff? What if we didn't have to make the whole cake and we could just take the icing off? And that sort of was the the origin of, of this company, if you will. I, it, I think – keep going. I was just going to say, if I might add, the, the really cool end of that story is that a year later, I had gotten to know Anna Isaacson a little bit, who does community relations for the NFL, and was able uh, – pro bono for the NFL's uh, – so uh, for their uh, community people, the, a year later at the next draft in Philadelphia, I was in an inner city classroom and I was the only person there in this in this pullover interviewing Roger Goodell. A year basically to the day of watching that show, Good Sport had formed and here I was talking to Goodell about what they were doing in the inner city school. So it was really cool. That is a quick ramp up and, 
that Laramie Tunnel incident vividly. He got over it. I think he just got paid a lot of money, yes, as he, he said. Did. So yeah. shout out to him. Glad everything's working out. But it it is it is interesting to me. The I hate twenty four hour news. I think it's the worst. I don't enjoy it. Um, pretty much on any topic because they have to sell negativity because that's what gets people to keep coming back. But I do believe that there is a huge, huge percentage of the population that actually wants to hear about the good things. I don't care which cable news site you watch or, or station you watch. Mm-hmm. I think they all suck. It's all negativity. It's all pandering to their audience and it's terrible. And so with that, I mean, people have tried good news in the past, right? Like this isn't this isn't like a revolutionary idea. I think there's a serious no. XM station that it is just they only talk about good news. And my girlfriend's mom tells me about it all the time, the good things that happen. And then she falls back into watching Fox or CNN or MSNBC right. and then getting wrapped up in that negativity again. So I know she's at least conscious of it and tries to do what she does. Uh, so shout out to her. But like, at what? why why did you think what you were going to do was going to be different enough that people would say, you know what, we do just want to hear about some of the good news every once in a while? I think one of the things that we did early on, and it, it helps to be capitalized to a point, but not be overcapitalized. Because when you get overcapitalized, you can start taking some big chances and you mm-hmm. can go, you can kind of go for it. And I think that if I'd raised twice as much money or five times as much money, I might have been less... Uh, cautious or less thoughtful about how we got into it. So as mentioned, instead of focusing on this audience that I thought would just want good news, good sports news, we actually started to work our way into the ecosystem and really distribute our content, distribute our name, distribute our reputation by, by working with others who were upstream from us. So ultimately, I agree with you that others have tried. And I think even Whistle Sports, which now even mm-hmm. is, is a little bit tough to be an MCN model, but for a while was doing very well. Even Whistle Sports started in this with the same sort of promise of, of positive sports content. Mm-hmm. I've also seen, and we'll talk about the women's space, I've also seen entities pop up about, about women's sports that have not fared that well either. I think that not many of them have a few things that we, I think, do have going for us. One is the experience of our team that had been through sort of digital media wars and understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes those were content people trying to start businesses. We're business people trying to start a content shop. So everything is kind of defended and justified by the ability to make money. That sounds kind of callous, I guess, but that's the only way you can survive. And that's how that's we have exactly. For four years. So ultimately, where we go is we have what I would consider to be a a kind of mutually beneficial relationship with our partners. So for our new entity, we're actually going to be creating content for marketers that we're going to be using to help promote on our platform, but also can be used in theirs. And I remember even just a couple of years ago, media companies would say, well, our branded content studio creates something for you. It can only run on our you know network. And then that was quickly broken down when the marketer said, well, we also want to put it up in our social media feeds. And sometimes there's talent rights and things like that that do get in the way of things like that. But now we're in a world where marketers and everybody out there has become content providers, right? Because of social media, they've actually become media companies in a way, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not sure why. I'm a longtime AT&T customer, but I'm not sure why I would follow AT&T on, on Twitter. But but a couple million people probably do. Yep. And I know for a fact that 
that companies like those only hear from their Twitter followers when something goes wrong, right? Or when 5G is causing COVID or whatever. <laughs> so, so now, so now if they can have a steady drumbeat of content sort of showing their, their social consciousness, and especially again, given, given recent events, and you're seeing the way companies are reacting to it, that's where I think we fit. So it's not so much about herding people into our zoo. Mm-hmm. It's more about a safari model where our content travels. That's a really great analogy. Did you just it, come up with that on the spot? No, I'm going to oh. give uh, I'm going to give Ezra Kucharas, who I think is the chief business officer at DraftKings. Now we used to work at, at NBC together. He came up with that a while ago. That and is so, a there. You go, Ezra. Shout out Ezra. If he ever wants to come on the show, he is also more than welcome. Uh, that that, oh, that later on. Yeah, be careful what you ask for there, but you'll get plenty from him. Right. Yeah, he's he's a, he's an interesting dude. I I'll can take it. Yeah, I will yeah. take it. That would be awesome. Yeah. But um, so I know you know as you said, you've kind of in you know you have this model and the and the reason you wanted to start it and what you were trying to do and now it it were at least over the four years it has shifted. So I guess tell us mm-hmm. about the evolution of that and oh wait no time out i actually want to hop back a second so you're an investor and an advisor into many different businesses and then you decided to try and go go raise your own money mm-hmm. how much of that knowledge over those few years of being an investor being an advisor understanding what those people are looking for how much and i don't want to use the word easy because i'm sure it was still very difficult but how much more capable did you find you were yourself when going to talk to other people that were, you know, sitting in your side of the table before. And now you're saying, Hey, I know these are the five things you're always looking for in a pitch deck. These are the people that you want to see. These are the relationships we have. How much, and again, I can't think of another word other than easier, but how much more fluid, helpful, fluid, how much those conversations, what were they like? You're absolutely right. It was, it was very helpful. And even the experience that I was referring to earlier about the uh, the mobile tech company that I work for, Silicon Valley backed. I'm out in there. I'm in I'm in Palo Alto. I'm in I'm in board meetings. I'm on Sand Hill Road. Our law firm shared the firm with Facebook. I was in the middle of this. It was uh, you know not the biggest company in the world, but we were around that vibe, and I had never been around that vibe before. And I would sit through board meetings uh, with VCs, and as the head of sales, I had took a few arrows, mostly in the back, some in the front, but but, and then investing in my own, doing my own startup type investing. I, I did learn. And I also learned what 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 looked good that probably wouldn't be sustainable. And I had I invested in a Pinterest influencer company because Pinterest was the hottest thing at the time. And and I remember thinking, I can't pitch this thing as a shiny object. I can't pitch this thing as a this has to happen now. I have to pitch this thing as something that appeals to people kind of viscerally but also has a defendable business model behind it. And we've had ups and downs. And, and frankly, this whole situation with the pandemic has been brutal on our, on our core revenue business, which is the, which is the production company. We haven't been able to shoot or do anything like that, but because we were able to build a company that had a sustainable uh, business model and, and, and had enough flexibility and enough, frankly, enough profitability in it, that's why I think my investors uh, came in with me. Some of them had seen me operate in other companies. Some of them were personal friends. Uh, people have to take chances on you. And I'm grateful for everyone who has. And and I wake up every morning. And some of them are very close personal friends. And everybody says that's a double-edged sword. But I'll tell you, you never get out of, out of bed earlier than when you're thinking about disappointing a friend. So sometimes that can work to your favor. 
Yes, I like that too, man. You're just dropping knowledge bombs everywhere. <laughs> Ross was that. right. This is a good one. We still have a couple more minutes to go and a couple more questions. So I'm excited. All so right. now, now let's go back to the future. I think we are um, the evolution okay. of the business. As you said, you had an idea when it started. This is what you wanted it to be. You now laugh at some of those things that were in that original pick deck that you were showing to your friends and family, yeah. asking them for all this money. So what has what has that evolution looked like over the last four years? And where do you see potentially the business going from here? So for the last four years, we've been largely a house band of good in the sports industry, building content for others. Uh, sometimes our brand would go along with it. I wasn't as insistent on it maybe as I should have been early on, but ultimately we've gotten, I think, a decent name for ourselves. But about two years ago, just through our travels, we were doing content at the Sports Business Journal conferences, and we were just getting to know people in the industry. And it just occurred to us. I didn't have like that Laramie Tunzel moment, but it just occurred to us that there is a really – there's an underserved part of the sports world even within it, and it's right in front of your eyes, and it's women in sports. So it's estimated that women uh, – so of all the sports media coverage, only 4% goes to women in sports. 4%. And I'm not necessarily saying it should be 40 because we kind of know people go where the audience goes, but 4% is just glaring, right? And then there's other stats that are embedded in terms of our society that would indicate that it's very important that women and girls succeed in sports. And if and if we believe in leaders on the field, we'll be leaders in life. So 94% of, of female C-suite executives played sports. So if we're trying to make changes, and this is kind of post Me Too, post Time's Up, and I'm hoping that this, for instance, this moment that we're having right now, sometimes it takes a really negative catalyst to get people's attention. And I, I think it's a shame that it does. I think, it's, you know, we shouldn't have to have something like what occurred in Minneapolis or what occurred with the Me Too movement to get people's attention. But I guess that's just the way it works. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you why. I don't know that what herd, I don't know. I don't have herd psychology uh, knowledge, but ultimately what we decided to do is focus on women and girls in sports. And that's where we're going next. And I can just keep spitting out stats as to why it's so important. Um, but the, the cool thing from a business opportunity is that there is way more interest than you might see on the surface by watching the general sports networks, because there is sort of the silent majority of people that that love to empower inside their own families, that are trying to raise their daughters in a certain way, they're trying to raise their sons in a certain way to respect uh, women and girls. And sports is sort of a canvas that a lot of life stories are painted on. And that's what we're trying to do next. Sports are the canvas that a lot of life stories are painted on. We we could write a book of just incredible quotes from you from here, man. But I, no, I totally I did, agree. I made that one up. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. Write that or, one. Or, or Ezra, I don't know. Somebody <laughs> write write it down. We'll put you as a quotation. Right, it's fine. Um, but no, you make a really good point about that. You know, that's the thing. When I heard that four percent number, as I told you, I'm working with um, Lindsay Napella Berg. She's yeah. uh, heading up the Corde project, and that was one thing that was in. You know, that was one of the big drivers for her is, you know, only 4% of women's sports are covered. And then earlier this year, obviously, before everything started to happen, ESPN made an initiation to, I think, show something like 200 or 250 just like college softball games. Mm -hmm. That's it. And they weren't all going to be on ESPN. Most were going to be on, you know, the ESPN, you know, plus or ESPN, right. whatever the, the, the app they have yeah. now. But that alone, it just shows you if people are willing, if you put it out there, 
people will watch it. It's it's not like it's this like mythical thing where, you know, you have to go to some like random college's website to get, you know, this weird, you know, private YouTube page to get into. No, if you just put it out there, people will watch it. You'll get eyeballs. And again, you'll continue to grow the sport. How else are you supposed to grow something if people can't watch it? And so that was just something that, you know, when you did say that statistic, I remembered what ESPN was at least trying to put an initiation of. And I think you know, you're clearly working in the right direction because if the biggest of biggest powers in the sports world is trying to do something, mm-hmm. as you said, it doesn't hurt to be one of those feeder fish along the way, right? No, and and even beyond live sports and and, and coverage of women's sports tends to be very spiky. So mm-hmm. we saw last summer with the Women's World Cup and, you know, you throw the American flag on something like the Olympics, yeah. like the World Cup, it gets a lot of attention. And I thought that there would have been a great opportunity actually to go back to back with women's sports because our the team that we were going to field for the Olympics was going to be spectacular on the women's side and probably win more medals than the men and probably win more medals than anybody in the Olympics. And they can do that again next summer. But we, we, speaking of the Olympics, we thought a lot about the the storytelling model, right? So if you think about the fact that the girls drop out of sports at twice the rate of boys, which is according to the Women's Sports Foundation, an amazing resource, then one of the top reasons that they've cited is lack of role models. So if there's a lack of role models, how do you have a role model? Well, you can broadcast their games and you can, you can love Sue Bird and you can say, I want to be Sue Bird one day. But not everybody's going to be superb one day, right? So we try with our new initiative, which is live now on GoodSport.me, we are now trying to tell kind of like almost undertold stories of women and girls in sports. It's very much the Olympic model. So the Olympic model, what I mean is, uh, and NBC has been brilliant at this, is bringing you in and getting you to to invest in these people, right? You've probably never thrown the javelin, Michael. I don't know if you have or not, but I'm sure there's some javelin thrower next summer that you're going to be like, oh my, we got to tune in because so-and-so is throwing it at seven o'clock. You don't care about the javelin. You don't even know if they measured in meters or yards when they throw it, but you do know something about that person because there's texture to their story. His and, uh, his name is Chris Mirabelli. He went to Rutgers, uh, had a heart condition, had to stop playing for two years and eventually made it back. So yes, everybody make sure to tune in. Hopefully Chris Mirabelli will be in the Olympics for us next year. Is he a javelin thrower? Yes, he is. Wow. I didn't even, I promise we I did not, you. we didn't pro, we did not practice that. That was really good. We're doing it live. That's, that's yeah, the, uh, that's, that's why good. we do these things live, but I apologize that's for awesome. interrupting. No, no, you had to throw that in there. So, so we're, we're looking at people like Jen Welter, the first woman to coach in the NFL, and what she does with gridiron girls and, and, and helping uh, teach girls how to play mm-hmm. football. We're looking at, at uh, uh, Bombette Martin, this really cool young 13-year-old skateboarder who was trying to make the Olympics. Actually, this probably worked in her favor. She probably has a chance at making it next year. She was really young this year. So these aren't necessarily household names. But if 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 one little girl can see Bombette, or if one if one coach, one woman who's thinking about coaching can see Jen Welter, it can make a huge difference over time. And we're not going to solve this ourselves, and we're not going to try to compete with ESPNW. In fact, I think we could probably be a content provider to them at some point. But if all boats are going to rise together, and we're really going to make a difference of women in corporate America, we need to focus on girls and sports and giving them that that confidence, that competitiveness that you so often associate with boys, right? I have two sons and a daughter. And when I used to walk around with my sons, people would say immediately, what sport do you play? Nobody rarely asks a girl that, you know, it's not part of what our our society deems to be ubiquitous mm-hmm. as it is for boys. So there, there are a lot of 
there are a lot of people trying to, I think, solve parts of this. And the, the part that we're trying to solve is, is, is really empowering and enlightening content that, that inspires young, young female athletes. And I'm all for it, man. I think it is so important again, just to, just to let them, because that's the thing. There's so many women and girls that don't, they don't see somebody within that professional realm, as we've been saying, the soccer team, obviously in these last couple of years, it's been right. incredible. The Olympic sports, um, you know, once every four years, those names really come to light and you get to see that. But if there is that constant, consistent communication between news outlets, what these incredible women are capable of doing, we're just going to see more and more girls play these sports. And what happens when we have more people play sports, the competition level rises and everyone gets better and, and we want to watch them even more. It's literally just a hamster wheel. We just have to step onto that hamster wheel. So I appreciate what you're doing there, Paul, and how you're trying to get it so that more, more of these girls can see themselves within these, these uh, professional athletes and then understand like, Oh, I can go do that. Oh, it's not just boys who can go be professionals. I can do that too. And all these different opportunities and, yeah, I think the more of that communication we have with the younger generation, the better. Absolutely. And and that will also create a generation of fans, right? Mm-hmm. So so those people will also tune in. So it's good for business. One of the major media companies that were in conversations about distributing some of our women's content for right now said, we really need, and it, this is within mainstream sports, we need more young girls watching the NFL or whatever, mm-hmm. because if they become fans, they're going to be that next generation. And this is 50% of our country. And if you want, if you tune into a game on Sunday, you're not seeing commercials that are aimed at them. You're not seeing much content that's aimed. And I think the NFL claims that 48, I think self reported numbers, 48% or something like that are female, they're fans until recently the NFL shop had the shrink it and pink it mentality where you would just take a Jersey and say, it's a small, so it's for women. And then now with the stuff they're doing with Aaron Andrews and others, they're actually addressing uh, mm-hmm. attire and and things for women and content should be should be steered the same way. We we think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about this. I think that coming out of this situation in the pandemic, there's going to be there's a relatability to this type of content. I think we've all kind of gotten a little bit introspective. Hopefully, there's an affordability to this to this to these to these games. So you could take your whole family to a WNBA game for probably a hundred bucks, right? Imagine what the NBA equivalent to that would be. So, and a lot of people are going to come out of this pretty hurt in the wallet. So I think there's, there are really, and there's relatability. The third ability is relatability. Some of these athletes are moms. So, you know, they, they, they have a lot to their stories. Some of the players in the NBA have been, have been pampered athletes since they were 15 or 16 years old. And it hasn't allowed them to have that dynamic experience that, that a lot of the female athletes. So, and, and, and accessibility, they're very happy to spend time with their fans. And so if we can bottle some of that sentiment and come out of this with that, we think there's going to be a great opportunity. I am so excited. This is awesome. Paul, thank you so much for your time. We're right about an hour. This is absolutely fantastic. Paul Bremer, founder of good sport, all around incredible dude, interviewed Roger Goodell, investor in some companies. I appreciate your time today, Paul. Thanks a lot. And just please go to goodsport.me and give some feedback. Yeah, just you're going you're gonna to give me all the socials. You're going to give me yeah. all any any of the best pieces yeah. of content that you've had. All that will be in the show notes for everyone to enjoy. So, yes. And Perfect. where can everyone find you on the internet, Paul? Well, I don't tweet. So, which Ross wasn't too happy about our PR guy, but I, uh, you can find me on Facebook and you can find, uh, you can find me on Instagram. Although that's sort of my artsy side, but, uh, like ultimately it. all of my stuff is in LinkedIn. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm very into LinkedIn. In fact, my old company used to call me Abraham LinkedIn cause I was on LinkedIn oh. so much. So very into LinkedIn. Yeah. So 
find I'll find me on LinkedIn for I'll business stuff. Well. Yeah. I love it. Good stuff, Paul. Right. Thanks so much. Thanks. Appreciate you having me.